Uh, we are going to be starting a new sermon series today in the book of Daniel, uh, and we're actually going to call that Eternal Hope. Did I, did I get that right? Yeah, okay. Eternal hope. Uh, and we're talking about hope in Babylon. Uh, so it, it's going to be a great time uh, going through this together. This is a, a return uh, according to, again, the elders and the leaders that I was able to talk to. This is a return to what is normal uh, for, for this church, which is expositional, uh, verse by verse, uh, moving through an entire book of the Bible, uh, and, and something I'm comfortable with, something I've grown up with for the last several years. And so I'm glad to be a part of that with you all here. But going verse by verse means that we're going to be going through some texts that we're probably really familiar with and know, you know, if if you've been in church, you probably know them since you were a kid. Uh, But we're also going to encounter some things that are a little weird, awkward, don't really translate as well to our modern Western eyes. Uh, But it's it's going to be uh, good to go through these together. And we're going to see this idea of uh, of, uh, eternal hope or something I'm going to be talking a lot about today, uh, the faithfulness of God uh, is, is a really powerful theme. Faithfulness is really an important thread throughout the entire book of Daniel. You know, obviously it's about the, the faithfulness of some extraordinary characters uh, throughout uh, different parts of the book, but in a bigger and more substantial way, it's about the faithfulness of God and how he cares for his people. I, I openly admit that the Bible, the whole Bible, is a book about God and about the promises he's made to his people. And, and as part of his people, we're a part of that story, right? So, so the book of Daniel is just a small slice of that bigger story, that bigger grand narrative. It's a story of God's faithfulness and how our faithfulness fits into that. It's going to have some, again, some really cool stories, uh, and then it's going to take a really hard turn into uh, a style of writing that we're probably very unfamiliar with or maybe a little uncomfortable with. Uh, It's probably going to feel a little bit more like I'm preaching out of the book of Revelation than I am uh, an Old Testament uh, prophetic book, Uh, but it's going to be great. Um, Needless to say, I'm really excited about uh, being here with you all and and going through uh, this book together and, and going through God's word together with you. But I Look, I don't want to pretend uh, that having me and several others up up here over the past several weeks uh, has been normal. And and honestly, I want to say that's okay. It's okay to feel that way. Um, You know, me me being up here twice in the last couple months hasn't come in any sort of vacuum. I I want to openly admit that. And I know that there still might be some lingering, you know, uncertainty or hurts out there. I want to acknowledge those and say that's okay. That's honestly something that a lot of people that might be coming to church for the first time, maybe even in this church body today, bring to church with them on on a lot of Sundays. It's okay to feel that way, and I'm going to say that it's it's better to be here than than to not be. Uh, So we're we're grateful for that, and and I just want to convey, when I talk to several of the leaders over the past couple weeks, there is a strong care care for for a a responsibility felt, a love for for this church that your leaders have for you. So I'm very excited. I think that's a great starting point to be here with. And so uh, I'm excited to focus this body in on the word of God and specifically in our study of Daniel. So with the book of Daniel in mind, I would actually like us to turn in our Bibles to Jeremiah 29. Exactly. Right where y'all thought we were going, right? No. So uh, today's sermon is actually going to come from this chapter, from Jeremiah chapter 29, specifically verses 1 through 22. And you might be thinking while you're turning there, why is it we're spending time in here instead of just starting in Daniel 1 verse 1, right? And the reason is that we kind of have to set the stage for the book of Daniel itself in a historical uh, setting. We've got to ground this in, in the history of the Bible and see where this fits in the whole narrative. This part of Jeremiah 
and the events of the book of Daniel come at one of the lowest points in the history of all of Israel. Uh, this has been, there, there's been several failures of the Jewish people leading up to this, uh, uh, meddling with idolatry, failures of kings, there's been warfare, and now we're seeing deportation from Jerusalem, we're seeing separation from the promised land, and we're honestly seeing what feels like a separation from the promise of God. We feel like we're separated from God himself here. And, and, but thanks be to God that the story goes on from there. It doesn't end there. Our God is a God of faith, is not a God of faithlessness. He's a God of faithfulness. He isn't a God who delights in our pain, and, and he's not afraid, or he, he's not someone that takes joy in our misery, but he's also not afraid to use our worst moments as a chance to hone our focus back in on him. It's one of the best ways when we suffer for us to learn what truly trusting God looks like, and it's a way to display faithfulness to the one who is always faithful to us. Our big idea today, coming out of Jeremiah 29, is that even in our lowest moments, we can have hope in Babylon. Hope in Babylon is, is something we're going to see throughout today, and really throughout the entire book of Daniel moving forward. You know, the question we always have when, when we're reading our Bibles, and maybe especially the Old Testament, is whether or not we can find some sort of application to that today. Do, does it really apply to us here you know, how does this translate to a church in Belton, Texas, over 2,500 years after the words were originally written? Well, we're going to see that we actually have a lot in common with the recipients of this letter. And, and we're going to see that our, our desire, just like the Israelites of this time, is to seek comfort at times of, uh, in times of peril or in times of uh, suffering to the point of almost getting close to compromising faith and, and obedience to, to what God has called us to. But, uh, you know, in our modern setting, our, our modern area, you know, we could see or maybe make the argument that our, our society, our social setting is trending a little bit more towards Babylon than it would be towards Jerusalem. And, and that's, we, we can admit that, we, we, at least we know where we are, but the, the danger is to, to get too close to a society opposed to God rather than maintaining a distinct uh, witness and mission and heart towards those people that don't yet know the Lord. The solution we're going to see here. And again, in the entire series is that God is able to deliver his people through his absolute sovereign control of the nations and their rulers. And he does this because of his covenant love with his covenant people. Our job is simply to trust that when God acts, it is both for his glory and for the good of the people that he is in relationship with us. And the way that it should shape us today is that we should seek to stay as truthful to the word of God as the Israelites were called to in this original setting. And that we should seek the well-being of the communities in which we live, and in, in which God has placed us. That's what hope in Babylon is going to look like. And it not only glorifies God, but it serves as a way of making his mission go forward into the world. There's a lot that we're going to get into this morning, but before I go any further, I'd like to take a just, just a quick moment and pray for us, and then we'll dive into God's word. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you so much uh, for this chance to study your word. God, we know that your word is living and it is active, and I, I pray that it is active today. Father, send your Holy Spirit among us. Let us hear and receive and be changed by your word. Let us know that this is not a historical fact or a, you know, a, a cool old story, but something that speaks to us with the relevance of your word, your very voice today. Father, I pray that you remove me from this. Get me out of the way and let your spirit uh, preach your word in a powerful manner to your people. God, we love you so much. We trust you. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. 
All right, so our first point today is going to be pretty simple. Uh, I'm calling it a letter to Babylon, a letter to Babylon. So if our big picture for this morning is hope in Babylon, we kind of need to answer a couple of basic questions before we go any further. Why Babylon? Why, why hope? Why a letter? Well, I mean, what, what exactly is going on? Where are we in our Bibles? Where are we in the biblical storyline? These are important questions when starting to study any new book of the Bible, really. Uh, if anyone's heard of Jen Wilkins, she's a, a Bible teacher at, at a church in Dallas, uh, has written some great studies for, for men and for women uh, that, that I think are some really good ways to kind of study our Bibles. And one thing she always recommends is uh, do the hard work But when you start to study a book of answering what she calls the archaeological questions, the, the who, the what, the when, the where, the why, who wrote this, around what time, for what purpose, to who was the audience. Um, these are important uh, questions that we need to answer if we're going to really understand our text. So I'm going to read a few verses here, and then we'll get into some of that background information. So starting in verse 1, Jeremiah 29. These are the words of the letter that Jeremiah the prophet sent from Jerusalem to the surviving elders of the exiles, and to the priests, the prophets, and, to, and all the people whom Nebuchadnezzar had taken into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. This was after King Jeconiah and the queen mother, the eunuchs, the officials of Judah and Jerusalem, the craftsmen, and the metal workers had departed from Jerusalem. The letter was sent by the hand of Elasa, the son of Shaphan, and Gemariah, the son of Hilkiah, whom Zedekiah, king of Judah, sent to Babylon, to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. All right. So let's get a little historical context here. Israel, God's chosen people and a chosen nation, had settled into the promised land that God had promised them after the events of the first five books of the Bible, mainly after the exodus and the wanderings through the desert. And so that goes on for a little while. And then King David has a son, King Solomon, uh, who reigns uh, in wisdom, but has some, uh, his own struggles with idolatry towards the end of his life. And at the end of his life, uh, we see a very tragic event in the history of uh, Israel. We see a splitting of the kingdom into two kingdoms. We actually have a northern kingdom, Israel, and a southern kingdom, Judah. And I learned this one time. It's forever stuck with me. If you're always trying to remember which one is which, I above J, just think in alphabetical order, I guess. That's always helped me. Israel above Judah. Uh, and so Jerusalem is the capital city of Judah, the southern kingdom. Now, uh, I think I've got a map up here that could kind of give us a little bit of an overview. So this kind of highlighted area is what's called the Fertile Crescent. Uh, it's, it's a very uh, prosperous area in an arid part or arid region of the world. It's easier to grow crops, it's, uh, but it's also very attractive for other empires uh, to come and take control of. So in the mid-700s, around 750 to 740 BC, the Assyrian Empire comes down and attacks the northern kingdom, which is Israel, and, and wipes out several of the tribes of Israel, uh, deports a lot of them, and, and, and basically the northern half of God's people have been removed from the promised land. A little over a century later, we have the Babylonian Empire coming down. They don't really have much resistance in the northern kingdom, and they go all the way south down to Jerusalem, to the southern kingdom. And a Babylonian army led by King Nebuchadnezzar first laid siege to the city of Jerusalem around 599 B.C., and a little over a year later, he led the first deportation, forced removal of Jewish elites from Jerusalem and into Babylonian territory, all the way over to the other side of the map, off the Euphrates River. 
That's why you see the idea in our text of, of a queen. Her name was Nehushta. Uh, elders, priests, and prophets being those who are taking the way, t- taken away. The, the Babylonian strategy for exile was to take away some of the cultural elite, allow them to practice their, their beliefs and their, their uh, uh, religious uh, observances in your own, er, in Babylonian territory, but always with a safe distance of as long as it doesn't threaten our kingdom or our uh, practices. So the rest of Jerusalem would actually re- remain intact for about another decade or so. And then it would be totally destroyed by the Babylonians in around 587 BC. So that's, that's kind of the historical, the dry facts. Uh, but to say that this was a human catastrophe is an understatement. We're, we're talking about hundreds, maybe thousands of people uh, carrying everything they owned on their backs, slowly making their way over hundreds of miles. I've got a painting here. This painting actually comes, uh, it was uh, painted about 130 years ago, um, and this depicts the second deportation, but it gives the same sense of the tragedy that the, that the Israelites felt when they were being kicked out of the promised land. Uh, but it, it isn't just a historical tra- tragedy. There's a theological tragedy here. This was a huge, drastic, and, and tragic reversal for Israel as the promised people of God. God made promises to their, their forefathers, to, to Abraham and to Moses. And he said, I will promise you a dwelling place in this promised land. And it seemed like he promised them peace and security and thriving while they were there. And now look at it. It's, it's gone. It's, it's over. It, it feels hopeless. But then out of that awful and, you know, just the, the deafening silence of suffering, a letter comes to them. A word from God himself, meant to be a message of reassurance to the Jews when it felt like their world was falling apart. This is actually a great lesson for you and I today as we work to read our Bibles and, and to be able to interpret what God is telling us in its pages. Part, part of in, interpreting scripture is to remember that there is always what is called an original audience. The author wrote this to someone in a certain setting. This was written to these exiles 2,500 years ago. There's a specific historical context which works its way into the context of the book itself of Jeremiah, which works its way into the whole Bible where we see Jeremiah talk to Daniel and talk to other parts of the, of the scriptures. So it's a really cool way to see how our Bible works together. But that same message to an original audience is applicable to every reader of scripture since then. It's applicable to you and I today. That's a very evangelical confession. Most postmodern scholars would say, no, there's no application. It's just, a, it's just a fancy story or, you know, take a little bit of a moral from it, but, but not really uh, take it as historical truth. And we say, no, it, it's true. And, and there's meaning for it for us today. So another way of saying this that I thought of was that the Bible is really old. It's, it's even ancient. You can call it that. And yet, guess what? It is still alive. It is still living for us today. Hebrews 4.12 reminds us of, of, of this when it says, For the word of God is living and active. It is both alive and it does something sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. The Bible is a living, breathing word from our God, our living God, to his people, just as applicable today as it was when it was originally written. And so often today, whether we admit it or not, we struggle to see the Bible that way. 
we, we struggle to see that it is a gift from God to us. And, and we need to work, we need, we need to strive to cherish the word of God in that way. Re- reading your Bible isn't some sort of chore or, or a task uh, that you have to get done to call this day complete. It is a message from the living God to you. The Israelites who were the first to hear these words, they were desperate from, for something from the Lord, anything from the Lord. Let me challenge me. I want to hold myself accountable and each of us here today to have a similar appetite for the word of God. Psalm 119 is a great place to see how much the word of God benefits people and individual persons and a people, a corporate gathering of God's people as well. And my prayer for you and I and the rest of God's people today is that we would grow in our hunger for the word of God. The Bibles we have in our hand, a miraculous uh, gift from the living God uh, each and every day. But that's just a little bit of the background of the letter. That's kind of how we got to, uh, to verse 4, where we actually start the text of the letter itself. But what is, what, what are, what's contained in here? What's the message? What does hope in Babylon look like for those who are probably feeling pretty hopeless? We're going to see that God has a plan for his people, even when it seems like it's all fallen apart for Israel. So let's pick up in verse 4. It says, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. See that? He said, I sent you there. Uh, Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease, but seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare, you will find your welfare. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, do not let your prophets and your diviners who are among you deceive you and do not listen to the dreams that they dream, for it is a lie that they are prophesying to you in my name. I did not send them, declares the Lord. Okay, God starts out probably not the way that the Israelites wanted to hear. They probably wanted a big apology letter saying, I'm so sorry for what happened to you. How can I make things better? How, do you want me to take care of those mean old Babylonians? He says, no, I did this. I, I sent you there, and that's okay. God starts out with a focus on what our second point is going to be, which is goodness in Babylon. We started out with a letter to Babylon. Now we have goodness in Babylon. There's no doubt that it was a bad thing for Israel to be deported from the land that God had promised them. But this wasn't Babylon's doing, and this wasn't uh, just the Israelites, uh, you know, saying, let's just pack up and go somewhere better. No, this was all happening at what God had permitted to happen to them. And it's actually pretty clear that God did this as a punishment for their constant flirting with idols of other nations, of pagan nations. Again, Solomon struggled with this. Several of the uh, rulers, the descendants of David and Solomon after that. Um, So when you read through the kings, they'll say that he did evil or wickedness in the eyes of the Lord. Very clear language. They're talking about worshiping idols that were not uh, the covenant Lord of Israel itself. In Habakkuk 1, verses uh, 6 and 7, and then 9, it says, For behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans, which is another name for the Babylonians, that bitter and hasty nation who march through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings not their own. They are dreaded and fearsome. And then in verse 9, they come for, all vi- or for violence, all their faces forward. They gather captives like sand. And yet, even in the midst of, of this punishment, this God-given punishment, God makes a really bold claim. 
He says the best thing you can do while you wait out this set period of punishment, this set period of exile, is to do what basically sounds right had they been back in the promised land. It's saying build houses. Well, actually, that's probably a key indicator that you're going to be there for a little while, right? Uh, Building houses is kind of a permanent thing. Uh, Marry, have and raise children. Give your children into marriage. This is a multi-generational time frame he's talking to them. He's saying, you're going to be here for a while. Make this like home. Bring goodness, bring the goodness of God's people to an area that doesn't yet know this. Uh, and, and there are a couple of really good, important tie-ins to earlier parts of our scripture uh, that we have here in these verses. I always like to say, try to remember when thinking of the, the, the Israelites here, how thick are their Bibles? They're, they're not nearly as thick as ours. They, they don't have as many uh, books that they're referencing, but we have something that they already know. Um, my wife and I are leading a small group study right now through the book of Exodus. And uh, if you go through the first chapter of Exodus, you come across a verse in uh, Exodus 1-7 where it says the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and, in, and grew increase, or exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. Does that sound familiar? You know, Israel in a foreign nation that turned oppressive to them. That's them in Egypt, right? Before they actually went through the Exodus and into the promised land. And in the midst of oppression and separation from home, Israel, by God's grace, increased and multiplied. And God is not only telling them that They were able to do it before. He's saying, go do it again. Does this language sound familiar anywhere else? Maybe from the very beginning of our Bibles in Genesis chapter 1? Because it hearkens, for me, it it brought back a time where we actually did not know what sin looked like yet. In Genesis 1, where God told Adam and Eve to be fruitful and to multiply. Being fruitful and multiplying is language that God uses to express a blessing on his people. He does it at the beginning of the Bible. He does it here in Jeremiah. He'll do it later on in, uh, in the, some of the other prophets. And he actually does it in some of the New Testament uh, uh, writings as well. So even in the midst of something as traumatic as exile, as a removal from the land that God has promised them, God is still telling them, it's okay. Keep doing what, what, what I've always told you to do. Build homes. Have kids. Fill your homes with children. Don't feel so sorry for yourself that you just kind of atrophy and and waste away because get ready. There will be a time where I call you back to the work of going back to Jerusalem and establishing my presence there. And and part of answering the call to grow wherever we find ourselves planted is what happens in verse 7 here. You know, you see the word welfare several times. And I'm not sure about you, but if someone had just enslaved and, and moved me, uh, you know, what felt like halfway across the world, I'd be pretty salty about it, right? I'd want to do everything I could to not see their welfare come to fruition. I'd want to see, you know, uh, you know wait for someone else, a bigger, badder kingdom or a bigger, badder army to come along so they could maybe overthrow these guys and I, I could somehow uh, sneak out and get my freedom, Right. But if I were to constantly watch the waters for political or military developments, waiting to see who was always bigger or stronger or tougher out there, that'd be pretty exhausting, right? You'd always be obsessed with what you think your version of might or right looks like. And God is saying, don't do that. Just focus on me. Be a good citizen wherever you are. And if you're faithful to me, even in a place like Babylon, it's going to make those around you wonder just what it is that makes you so resilient as a people so focused beyond the present situation, so, dare I say, hopeful in the future. Now, in the middle of this, though, there are two areas that we do need to be cautious of, two sort of extremes to avoid. The first, I kind of see in verse 8, 
where, where we talk about uh, do not let the prophets or, or uh, diviners speak to you falsely, uh, but it's going to come to fulfillment a little bit later in our passage. It's listening to false messages and false promises and putting so much hope on them. It's saying our only hope is in returning to the, the way it was before, the, the good old days when we had it right uh, there. I, I can promise you the people that were deported from, uh, from Jerusalem had only known a lifetime of struggling and, and, and dealing with uh, pagan idolatry and, and the failure of king after king after king. So the, the, the good old days, the way it was before, wasn't working. Uh, so, you know, that's not, that's not one way to say, or that's one extreme. The other extreme is, you know, while maybe not constantly waiting out your situation, uh, but, you know, uh, the other kind of danger area would be to say, you know what? The Babylonians actually have it pretty good over here. You know, they, they seem to be the biggest and strongest around. No one messes with them. They allow us to practice our beliefs again at a safe distance that doesn't threaten them, right? But we never even had it this good back home. Maybe we're supposed to be here versus Jerusalem. And, and, and what is that? That is, that is growing too, too close, too attached to the culture that God has called us to care for that we eventually uh, become more enmeshed with the culture than we do with God himself. I think this is one that the American church is particularly vulnerable, vulnerable to today because we've been listening our entire lives to this idea that, that your life is successful when it is one that gathers the most stuff, the most relationships, the most influence, the most money. That is what a successful life looks like. It's saying that God is blessing you and he shows you that he loves you when you have you know, more social media influence, a bigger platform, when you're, you know, favorite college beats Alabama on a last second field goal like last night. I'm sorry, that, that's, I went too far. Uh, no, um, don't worry, we'll, we'll go through another probably 10 years of wondering after that. Uh, but no, um, I mean, that, for a lot of people, that, that, that is what success looks like. That is what God's love looks like. And even though we can say, maybe we can kind of joke about that in a church like this, and Christians are able to say, I know that that's a struggle, but I don't really struggle with that. Let me tell you, it, it's more pervasive in our hearts than we'd like to admit. You know, I was thinking about this a, a little bit earlier this week uh, when my daughter was getting up from a nap. Um, you know, she, whenever, whenever she gets up, it's a whole routine. Uh, she has to have, let's see, her, her unicorn, uh, two little blankets, uh, two books, uh, a Paw Patrol toy, uh, another book that she forgot, and then something I just like to call like the rotating toy of the day. And that's just to get out of her crib to go and have a snack after her nap, right? And when you watch a two-year-old waking up, kind of groggy, stumbling over, carrying more than her arms can physically carry, and she's like, I got it, I got it. And then she eventually doesn't got it. And, you know, something she trips or, you know, it falls out of her hands or whatever. It's the cutest thing in the world, right? I mean, it's fun to watch. But it's not so cute when it's an adult and what they're getting caught up in saying I've got is I've got all these things that make me great, all these things that tell me I'm a successful person. That's, that's, we, can see, we can see and say that that's uh, not, not really a, a pleasant thing to see. And, and when I think about how that could transfer to our situation, our desire to avoid uh, getting ensnared by the culture we find ourselves in, I think the biggest implication is that Christians should think seriously about how to obey and honor God while engaging with culture. 
Uh, Tim Keller has written a great deal on this, and I think he's pro provided a really good grid of different responses or different models that Christians have at their disposal and, and the strengths and the weaknesses that come with them. But the key idea, and he says that very often, is it's, not, it's to not focus so much on the culture that it eventually replaces God in, in, in importance and devotion in our hearts. Let's avoid that, and, and let's not spend so much time worrying about culture and, and the news of the day or the outrage of the day and how to transform the world uh, here that we lose sight of the God who has called us to pay attention to him, worship him, and do a little bit of good where he has planted us. Let's focus on faithful obedience to him, on goodness in Babylon, and we'll see that our hope in Babylon is one that keeps our hearts and our minds where they need to be. So, uh, for the exiles in, Bab in Babylon and, and for us today, our call is to have hope there, hope in Babylon. And part of that faithfulness, part of that hope is because our God has spoken to his people. He gave them a letter to Babylon. He's given us his word today. And then he's told us what goodness in Babylon looks like. But the word hope uh, implies some sort of future goal, some future end state, right? The exile is not meant to be permanent, so, uh, and, and throughout the Old Testament, God helps his people hope in a future through the, the idea of a promise. And so that's going to be our third section, our, uh, our next section, a promise in Babylon. We'll keep on reading starting in verse 10. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me uh, when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile." There's a lot to unpack here, right? The first thing is, is the use of 70 years as a prophecy for how long Israel is going to remain in exile before they return to Jerusalem. Now, we're going to spend a little bit more time on this when we get to J Daniel chapter 9, because Daniel specifically prophecies about this. But this is something that God fulfills. Interpreters kind of go back and forth as to whether or not 70 years is, you know, 70 years actually in Babylon, or is it 70 years from departing the temple to the temple being uh, restored but, but regardless, God states that this period of subjection or, or this time of his presence not being in Jerusalem is going to be 70 years long. That's a long time, which is why earlier he said, build homes, not put up tents in the desert. But we know that God fulfills his promises because guess what? We have that letter. We, we have the word of God. If you haven't read it before, the, in, in the Hebrew Bible, uh, the books that we know as Ezra and Nehemiah actually are just one book together because they tell the combined story of how these two leaders were sent back to Jerusalem after being you know, uh, told by kings and, and, and national movements that God controlled so that they could restore uh, the, the Jerusalem wall and the temple as it was meant to be built. So... Um, Let's see. I want to make sure. All right. Got that. Um, so when we spend the next several weeks talking about faithfulness in Babylon, it's not just the faithfulness of God's people. Again, God himself is the truly faithful one to us, preserving a remnant of his people for a set period of time to continue his mission on the earth. Which brings us to verse 11, Jeremiah 29, 11. I am confident that Jeremiah 29, 11 is one of the Bible's two most misquoted verses today along with Philippians 
Uh, those are great verses. Those are Holy Spirit-inspired verses, and they are important for us to know. But we always need to remember, those come in the context of intense, severe suffering. Israel is suffering. Paul is suffering. That is where these verses come from. We have to remember that before we ever read them. But the real reason I think Jeremiah 29, 11 especially is one that is so popular is that deep down, it gives us what we want. It acknowledges that pain is real and suffering is legitimate, but it ends at a, at a certain point, it ends and there's happiness. There's a happy ending that is very neat and concise and, and able to, to sell very easily. You know, I've got the word welfare in my Bible when God says he has plans for us, plans for our welfare. Uh, and, and other English translations might include the word prosperity or hope or even benefit. But you know what that word actually is? It's the Hebrew word shalom, which is what we often use for peace, for calm, for completeness. And that actually ties us back to our last section in verse 7. Look, the, the word, in, again, in the ESV is, is welfare three times. We just left that last section and talked about the danger of the American dream and talking about gathering as much stuff as you can in your life and being the best version of you. But this verse, Jeremiah 29, 11, and honestly, the rest of the Bible is consistent and firm in saying that God is by no means opposed to your prosperity, but he by no means guarantees it. In fact, it's much more common for you and I to know the blessing of God through our moments of suffering. And, and all that kind of context and context and the well, buts and, and everything, that doesn't really fit as well on a bumper sticker as God will prosper you, right? Uh, but we need to remember that prosperity is not what the world sees as prosperity. Prosperity is peace. It's the presence of the God of peace in our lives. Our, our location, our situation, our suffering, none of that is the most important thing. That's why we can wait for a long time, even 70 years wait worth of suffering because we still have the presence of the God of peace in our lives. You know, when I was thinking about this earlier this week, I came across a really good article on the Gospel Coalition that talked about the 15-year anniversary of a show that you probably have heard here called Friday Night Lights. Anyone? Has anyone ever watched that? Uh, I got a couple. Okay. All right. My wife watched it and she loved it. I, I actually haven't, but I do know that one of the most famous phrases from that series was when one of the main characters would always say, uh, Texas forever. He, he, you know, he just, he loved the state of Texas and, and he loved being here and he loved to use that phrase. Now that I can get on board with, right? Texas forever, man. That's great. But, but the article does a really good, better job than I could have explaining that. So I'd recommend go to read it. But, but the author, Brett McCracken, breaks down both words and show how it, it reveals our heart's desires. Texas, it's a desire for a place, a hometown, a physical location that you know like the back of your hand. You, you know the people there, the weather, the history, and it just, it feels like home. You know, you want to set roots down there. You want to see that place grow up. You want to see your kids grow up there. And, and this is actually, it's harder and harder in today's environment because it's never been easier to, than to, you know, pack up and, you know, pick up and, and move across the country. Uh, so uh, rootedness is, is very difficult in, in our modern setting. But there's a value to planting deep roots and growing in a stable community. Our hearts actually desire that. The second word is forever, you know, which reveals our desire for eternity. Deep down, you and, and, and I and, and everyone knows that we have some level of uh, non-permanence in the lives that we live here. But we also know that there's some level of, of deeper, uh, longer-lasting, older, ancient, or permanent, or eternal truths out there. 
Our hearts desire a permanent place, a place where we are secure in who we are and loved more deeply than anywhere else. That's what shalom is. Shalom is when God's people enjoy his covenant presence with them no matter the circumstances. It's, it's peace because we have him with us. He's not separated due to our sin and he hasn't removed himself or he hasn't stopped caring for, for us because our, our circumstances aren't great. But he's close and intimate with us and we're always secure in relationship with him. And if you haven't picked up on it yet, we will never find that permanent presence in anything outside of the Lord. It's not in stuff. It's not in relationships. It's not in legacies, not in power. It's in nothing but the God who dwells among his people. God dwelt in the tabernacle when Israel set it up in the desert. When King Solomon built the temple in 1 Kings, he dwelt, the presence of the Lord, the glory of the Lord, dwelt within that temple. Part of the tragedy of the exile is Ezekiel sees the glory of the Lord depart from the temple. You know, we see the idea of the presence of God dwelling among his people as incredibly important. And where does that take us? That takes us to John uh, chapter 1, verse 14. It's a famous verse. I love it. It says, what does is, what is, uh, the uh, Apostle John say? He says, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, the word being Jesus Christ. And we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. Truth. Jesus Christ was God and yet became a man to dwell among us. And God's people are no longer limited to some sort of ethnic or, or national tie. It's simply by faith alone, alone in the word that dwelt among us. It's faith alone in Jesus Christ of Nazareth. In his life, his death, and his resurrection, we know that God has loved us deeply and intensely. It's in the risen Lord who died in our place, in relationship with, with Jesus, that we will have that peace. St. Augustine wrote so elegantly on this when he introduced his book called The Confessions. And he wrote probably one of the best lines ever written outside of the Bible when he said, you have made us for yourself and our hearts are restless till they find their rest in thee. That's what our hearts desire. That, that's our peace. That's our shalom. That's when God's uh, promise, that's what God promises his people here. He says, and look in the following verses, you're gonna obey me. You, we will seek and know God. And then God says, I'm going to keep my promise to you. I will get you home to be my people in my place again. For us here in Central Texas, I think we can best apply this by just asking, do I have the patience to wait for God to fulfill his promises? Can, can I handle God's schedule over my own? That, that's why the promise in Babylon, even if it gets a little misread today, and I, I tease a little bit about that verse, um, is how Israel in exile... The, the Israelites in exile and us today are able to know that we can have hope in Babylon. So again, hope in Babylon, our big idea today, we've seen that it starts with the letter to Babylon, the message that God gave them. Then we see that it's goodness in Babylon that God seeks. And then we see that um, it, it's a promise in Babylon that, that follows that. So now we're going to see the last few verses, and I've got to pick up the pace here. Uh, we see that God promises accountability in Babylon. Let's read the last few verses starting in verse 15. Because you have said the Lord has raised up prophets for us in Babylon, thus says the Lord concerning the king who sits on the throne of David and concerning all the people who dwell in the city, your kinsmen who did not go out with you into exile. Remember some people were left behind, right? Thus says the Lord of hosts, behold, 
I am sending on them sword and famine and pestilence, and I will make them like vile figs that are so rotten they cannot be eaten. I will pursue them with sword, famine, and pestilence, and will make them a horror to all the kingdoms of the earth, to be a curse, a terror, a hissing, and a reproach among all the nations where I have driven them, because they did not, they did not pay attention to my words, declares the Lord, that I persistently sent to you by my servants, the prophets, but you would not listen, declares the Lord. So what do we have on the surface here? We have two faults of the Israelites here, or of the people that uh, Jeremiah is addressing. First, we have people listening falsely. They're saying, look, we have some people telling us some really good things over here. You know, most interpreters think that they were being told, hey, this, this uh, period of exile, it's actually gonna, only going to be about uh, you know, two to three months, and then you're actually going to need to go right back to where you were. And God's saying, no, I, I did not tell them that. Uh, these people are making this up. Uh, it's not true. Uh, and then he's saying to those who are still sitting in Jerusalem, don't think that just because you aren't in Babylon yet, that somehow I've forgotten your idolatry. This isn't the last time that you will face judgment. And he's right. Like we said earlier, Jerusalem will still exist as a city for the next decade or so. But in around 587 or 586, the final siege of Jerusalem comes and completely destroys the city. It is left in total shambles. And if you go read the book of Lamentations, it's how Jeremiah the prophet is dealing with the complete devastation of the city that God gave his people. Judgment delayed is still judgment delivered. So the first problem here is people listening falsely and saying, I want to hear the message that I want to hear, not the one that God is speaking to me. On the other side, he has some really harsh words for those who speak falsely uh, on behalf of the Lord. Look at, look at starting in verse 20. Hear the word of the Lord, all you exiles whom I sent away from Jerusalem to Babylon. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, concerning Ahab, the son of Coliah, and Zedekiah, the son of Maaseiah, who are prophesying a lie to you in my name. Behold, I will deliver them into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and he shall strike them down before your eyes. Because of them, this curse shall be used by all the exiles from Judah in Babylon. The Lord make you like Zedekiah and Ahab, whom the king of Babylon roasted in the fire. It is a serious thing to say you are speaking on behalf of God when you're really just making something up. It's, it's even worse to see what can, can happen in, in today's environment where people might warp or, or change the word of God so that you know, they could either imp improve their or elevate their own status or maybe even make a quick buck off of it. You know, and, and so we need to understand that uh, this is a warped twisting of God's word and God will not let it go unpunished. And, and then look at where we ended here, where he talks about the fate of these false prophets. False prophets in the Old Testament, and we see them some in the New Testament, are a very consistent theme. We see false teachers in the New Testament as well and some overlap between these terms. I think Jesus best captures how we should treat false prophets and, and that's simple. It's to beware of them and to not listen to them. In Matthew 7, Jesus says the following, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. So every, tree, every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, you will recognize them by their fruits. Now, most study Bibles and commentaries don't say that Jesus is explicitly citing our passage today when he talks about these false prophets, but, but I can't help but think that it was at least in the back of his mind as he spoke these words. You know, look, look at some of the common things. Prophets who prophesy in a false manner. The use of figs, of a fig tree, and, and bad fruit revealing a bad tree. 
uh, and then we'll get a little bit more into the, the destruction of them in a second. You know, this week I, I've been kind of finishing a project in the backyard. I've been doing the hard and messy work of, of cutting down some live oaks that, that we've had back there for a long time. And it was sad because we loved those trees. They provided shade for our kids to play in. But we realized that they, they weren't bearing good fruit. They weren't growing healthy green leaves and the branches were really starting to sag. So based on what it produced, we said, this is a, a bad tree. It's not alive. So, so we had to cut them down. And sure enough, when we cut it down, you looked at the trunk and it was just rotted from the inside out. It was full of, of bugs and carpenter ants and, and the inner core was just this black mesh. It was just kind of disgusting, right? So um, it was only a matter of time before those trees fell down and maybe could have really hurt someone. So we had to do that. And so I start to think, you know, how can we apply that same idea? How can we think through how to, how to do the same when it comes to prophets? I mean, that's a little tougher, right? How can we distinguish false prophets from true ones? How, how can we tell? Well, I think that requires biblical wisdom. And, and at our level of control, at, at mine and yours, that, that means that we need to be a people who live in the word of God who know the Bible so deeply that we can tell when something doesn't sound quite right from, from someone else. You know, reading our Bible daily, praying the Psalms, or even singing them out loud, you know, memorizing or meditating on Scripture. This is how God wants us to arm ourselves against false teaching. And we're going to need it because if you're not aware, false truths and, and false hopes and false gospels surround the church today. And just like those carpenter ants that look for a weakness in the bark, they look for one weakness to, to work their way in, and they're dangerous. They're, they're, they're deadly. Um, Paul uses very strong language in the book of Galatians for those who speak a false gospel. And finally, look at the fate of those bad trees that we see, or the false prophets we see here in verse 21 and 22. You know, it's kind of an awkward place to end right in the middle of the paragraph, but it's, it's perfect for what, what we have. They were roasted by the king of Babylon in the fire. Does that draw up any images from the book of Daniel? You know, do, do we remember anyone going down to a fire because the, the king of Babylon commanded it? Yeah, it's, it's the friends of Daniel. It's Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, right? You know, uh, of course, we, we see that. This is a great look ahead. It's setting the stage. Throwing someone in the fire is objectively, we can say that even today, an awful and torturous way to die. And we know that the Babylonians aren't afraid to use it as a method of capital punishment. Th and think about it. This is something similar to what the Romans did with the cross later on. But we see that this fear tool was at their disposal, and yet God, the, the God who promises people peace and shalom, he's actually going to turn that awful and torturous way to die as a way to display his power over anything we could throw at his people. So accountability in Babylon doesn't come without a purpose. It's meant to show that God is consistent in his justice and that he is unwavering in the promises he gave us and, and because of that, we know that hope is an option. It's, it's an option just uh, today, just as, it, as much as it was 2,500 years ago. We can have hope in Babylon because our covenant Lord blesses his people and judges those who are not his own. So where do we go from here? Today doesn't exactly end on a high note, right? Well, uh, we're going to go into the book of Daniel next, uh, and starting next week. Uh, we're we're going to go into the exile itself and, and see how life looked for those faithful people in Babylon. And we're going to see time and time again that there is an eternal hope for God's people in exile and that it is found in faithfulness, the faithfulness of the God who sent them and who will bring them home. 
Daniel can be a really challenging book to read and study and learn from because there are all sorts of different literary devices and genres that are being used. It, it, it can be easy to feel lost and that it, that it doesn't make sense or it doesn't apply to us today. But I can promise you that throughout our study, this time in God's word, we're going to see that we have a lot in common with Daniel and the Israelites who are waiting for home. We worship the very same God, the one who gave us his permanent presence and a hope for the future. He is good to us. He always has been. And we're going to see that story play out in wonderful ways, both in the scriptures and, our, and in our own lives today. 